Well, if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, you've probably had what many people often refer to as a mountaintop experience. Has anybody had a mountaintop experience, right? This, this time of, of deep conviction and just overwhelming emotion uh, as you respond in some way to the Lord. Oftentimes we have these mountaintop experiences when we just kind of get away from the, the normal everyday life to, to set aside some time to retreat, to focus on, on the Lord, to, to commit ourselves to think and feel uh, about Him. It, it can be a, a wonderful thing, and, and let's face it, it can be a terrifying thing when we think about what God calls us to. <clears throat> In those moments... You can sense the nearness of God. You can almost audibly hear His voice. You can feel His grip on your soul. And the sensation is simply overwhelming. His call and His direction are clear on your life. And you know how you need to respond. And and so what you do is, is with either hands raised or with heavy hearts or shouts of praise or with prayer and petition... You respond with a pledge. You say, I'm going to commit my life to you. I'm going to extend myself beyond all reason, beyond all comfort, beyond all sanity. Or maybe you simply say yes to God and whatever he's calling you to. Now, these mountaintop experiences, they can be life-changing, can they not? I mean, I'm sure that all of us can look back and say, man, my life was changed by that event. But let me ask you this, how long do those last? How long do we, we have that, that same feeling? You know, we, we might come home and we're on fire for God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share my faith with this person or that person. I'm going to go out. I'm going to start this ministry. I'm going to start meeting with those people to disciple them. I'm going to kill this sin in my life or I'm going to follow Christ to some distant mission field on the other side of the world only to find ourselves days or weeks or months or maybe even years. All those good feelings have been forgotten and we find ourselves back in the mundane of the valley and we're overwhelmed with doubt and fear. All those good feelings are gone. All those commitments that we made have been forgotten. We've given up. We've quit. We're, we're down. We're depressed. Our mountaintop experience has been swallowed by the mundane of everyday life in the valley. How often do we all have those great intentions to do this or to do that for God only to flake out a short time later? Have you all done it? I know I have. Some of us have this habit of being spiritually flippant. We're almost bipolar when it comes to God. Like one minute we're manic and we're on fire for the Lord, only to turn around and like a breath later, we find ourselves just completely cold and completely distant and having forgotten, having quit, feeling depressed. And we think that God is so far from us. He seems distant. He seems removed. Where is He? Where is that nearness? And so... If I'm describing you, and I think that I am, you're in good company. If I'm not describing you, you need to come and talk to me because I need to learn from you, right? And the reality is you need to be warned ahead of time because I'm probably going to recruit you to do a lot of stuff here, okay, right? Or 
when we get together and talk, your eyes might be open to the reality of your true state. You see, the sad thing is most of us are blind to how spiritually schizophrenic we really are. And here's why. You see, when we look at ourselves, we look at our faithfulness, what we do is we judge ourselves based upon our intentions rather than the actual fruitfulness of our faith in Christ. That's the big deal. That's the big difference. Rather than being intentional and being committed and enduring, we simply look at our good intentions that we never really act upon and that we don't stick to. And we look at those and we're like, see, uh, you know, I'm I'm basically good. Look at that. I, I, I had good feelings towards God at that moment, and so I'm okay. But what happens is when we examine ourselves based upon our intentions rather than our intentionality, We become overconfident in our own faith, in our commitment to Christ. And our overconfidence in our intentions typically, almost always, I can guarantee you, manifests itself in prayerlessness. How's your prayer life? We fail to see just how serious our misplaced faith in our intentions or our our overconfidence in our ability or our self-sufficient prayerlessness really is because we're not looking at the right thing. And so what we do as a result of that is we end up denying Christ. We fall away. We fall to temptation. And what this passage does this morning as we look at Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 42, is it sets a contrast between Jesus, between his disciples. And you see the difference in their faith and how it is manifest. You see Jesus falling on his knees before his father, completely dependent upon him. And you see the disciples who are saying, I'm good. Now let me go take a nap. Right? We're going to see those in stark contrast. And what we'll realize is that like Peter, James, and John and the others, we are overconfident in our abilities because we judge ourselves, again, based upon our intentions rather than the actual fruitfulness of our faith. Right? And, and instead of persevering in prayer and really understanding and grasping the full weight of what Christ has endured on our behalf, the weight of what has happened, we become apathetic and we fall away into fear or temptation or weakness of the flesh. I just got to say this. Praise God, it's not dependent upon us. You see, Jesus willingly faced agony for the sake of the apathetic, just like you and me. And Jesus' commitment to suffer for the noncommittal ought to lead us to enduring prayer and unrelenting praise. But enough of me talking about it. Let's see it in the text. So please turn with me. Mark 14. Verses 26 through 42, it's page 851 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. I want you to read along with me. This is God's word to us, Mark 14, 26 through 42. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, 
you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. If we are going to move away from this lack of intentionality to a true commitment to Christ, we must focus our attention first and primarily on how Jesus willingly faced agony. You know, our passage, it picks up with the conclusion of what could easily be considered a mountaintop experience. Jesus has just finished celebrating his last supper, the Passover, with his disciples. The Passover is probably the most intimate worship ceremony that a Jew could experience in that day. It was typically held with a family, but instead of of holding it with Jesus' biological family, you see him gathering his spiritual family together and worshiping intimately with them as they celebrated this tradition that is steeped for over a thousand years, closer to 2,000 years, and and it's all nationalistic in its nature, and they're honoring that. They're celebrating that. It's, It's very moving, but yet he redefines it. He takes those symbols that represented things that happened so long ago, back with Moses and the Israelites. And he says, no, they they apply to me. These are really intended to be about me. This bread of affliction, it represents my body, which is broken for you. He said, this cup, which represents God's divine power to redeem his people, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He is the true fulfillment of all that the Passover had pointed to. Right? This, is, this would be emotional. I, I wish you guys could recognize just how intimate and how powerful this moment would have been that Jesus shared with his disciples. I mean, they're, they're being rocked by what he said. Jesus places himself at the center of history in saying that the end of the world would culminate in this feast being joined together in the future kingdom of God in which he will celebrate with his followers. You just don't get bigger than that. And each one of them would have 
felt the weight of this intense and intimate emotional worship experience. And that's followed by the fact that Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him. And no one knows who it is. And each one of them is grieved to the heart. And through tears, they ask the question, is it, is it me? Am I the one who's going to betray you? No one knows who it is. And they all consider themselves to be a possibility. Surely it is not I. Surely I'm not the one. And they despaired at the thought that they might be the one that betrayed Jesus. And that's where we pick up in verse 26. The Passover ended around midnight, and it concluded with the singing of a hymn. And from there, they went out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed. The disciples would have left that room just completely emotionally charged. And I'm pretty certain that they were determined at that point, I am not going to be the one. I am not going to betray Jesus. I'm going to do everything that is possible. My intention is to stay faithful to Jesus at all costs. Jesus left the upper room knowing exactly what was going to happen to him. And he goes to his father completely dependent upon prayer seeking his father's face. Even there you begin to see a contrast. I haven't even really got into the text yet. (laughs) But here again in the Garden of Gethsemane, as as we've seen so many times before throughout the Gospel of Mark, you see the, the complete divinity and the full humanity of Jesus meet in perfect harmony. Jesus is not only the Son of God who is fully defined, he is also fully man just like you and me. And so often we gloss over this fact. We kind of minimize that rather than sitting in it and marveling at it and wondering at just who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. And so we have to start by drawing this out in hopes that it would lead us to a right understanding, that we would worship him for who he is. And so where do we see the deity of Christ? Well, let's look first at verses 27 through 30. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now Jesus' deity is clearly seen from this passage. He tells them directly, You all will fall away. It's a certainty. It's a guarantee. You will all fall away. You will be scandalized by me. I will become an offense to you, to your civility, to your security, to your safety, and you will flee. You will leave me. And that's exactly what happens in verses 50 through 52. Jesus' betrayer comes with this band of Roman soldiers and these These officials of the chief priests and the Pharisees, they come with swords and they come with clubs. And when the disciples, though they are intending to stay faithful to Jesus, when it comes, push comes to shove and their lives are on the line, they end up running in fear. Just like Jesus said they would. They scatter. Second, he tells them that this would happen just as it is written. And he's referring to Zechariah 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, in the original passage, promised 
that God promised through the prophet Zechariah. This is some 550 years before Jesus said this, okay? Just for context. Jesus said that God would strike down the good shepherd, the man who stands next to him. Okay, that's what Zechariah says. He's going to strike down the shepherd, the man who stands next to him, referring to God. I mean, who stands next to God? God stands next to God. No one else stands next to God. But God would do this in order to refine and restore a new people that belonged to him. God would strike down the shepherd, as it says in Zechariah 13, verse 1, to create a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Jesus is claiming to be that shepherd who was prophesied 550 years ahead of time. He would die on the cross to pay the ransom for the sin of many. This was always part of God's eternal plan to strike Jesus down in order to cleanse and restore a people to himself. And because Jesus is the Son of God, who stood next to God because he is God, he could pay the infinite cost that is required to pay the ransom for the rebellion, our rebellion, against an infinite, eternal, and holy God. If Jesus were just a man, it would be a life for a life. He would have no ability to atone for an infinite offense against an infinite God. But because he is God, his sacrifice is of infinite worth. But Jesus is not done, even though they all will scatter. Guys, think about this. He tells them, listen, you're all going to scatter. You're all going to fall away. This was predicted way ahead of time. It's going to happen, okay? After I'm raised from the dead, I'll meet up with you in Galilee. I mean, what grace. Think about that. Just meditate on that fact. They're going to deny him. And he said, I'll meet up with you guys again. How often do we do that? We don't. But he knows. And we see that this passage is fulfilled in chapter 16, verse 7, as the angel meets three women in Jesus' empty tomb and reminds them of this very promise. A promise that we see fulfilled in Matthew 28 and Luke 24, John 20 and 21. It's referred to in Acts 1 and Acts 13. His resurrection proves without a doubt that he is the Son of God and that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied. And he appears in Galilee and many other places to many people so that they might serve as eyewitnesses of this truth. It is fulfilled. He is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. The fourth way that we see Jesus' deity is in his prediction of Peter's denial. In verse 29, Peter is determined that he will not betray Jesus. And he's emphatic about it. But yet Jesus replied to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And this is fulfilled in verses 66 through 72. There are other indicators of Jesus' deity in this passage. In verses 35 through 37, Jesus knows that the hour has come, that he will drink the cup of betrayal and suffering. It's upon him, and he pleads intimately to his father, calling him Abba, which means Daddy. No one prayed like that in his day. This is unique. Verse 40 and 41 and 42, Jesus knows that the hour has come, and so he wakes Peter, James, and John up. He says, come on, let's go. My betrayer's at hand. He's right here. Let's go get him. 
and they meet up with him. All of these serve to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, that he knew and he actively participated in God's unfolding eternal plan to restore a people to himself through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for sin. Jesus knows this. He engages that. He's part of it. His return um, and eternal reign in the kingdom of God is the ultimate goal, and all of that has been foretold for millennia beforehand in the Old Testament. Jesus' resurrection proves that all of his claims are true. You and I, we need to marvel and wonder at these precious truths that are revealed about the nature of Jesus in these verses. This is huge. Guys, you guys meditate deeply on this fact. Marvel at who Jesus is. Now, I would say that most of us here would probably at least to some degree acknowledge and glory in the deity of Christ. That unlike unbelievers, we actually have more of an issue with Jesus' humanity than we do with his deity. Now, we'll, we'll give head nod. Jesus was a man who lived in the past. <laughs> Jesus is not like me. I mean, really? He's still the son of God, right? He... he he doesn't understand my pain. He doesn't understand my experience. He doesn't understand my struggles. He wasn't tempted in every way that I was, yet without sin. Right? Maybe you haven't articulated it that way. But often we go through life thinking that Jesus didn't face temptation the way that we do, that he's not really a man like me. I mean, let's face it, guys. We think that we're unique in our struggles, that we can't even identify completely with one another, right? Oh, you don't know me. You don't understand me. You don't know what it's like. We've all said that, haven't we? So if we've said that about one another, then certainly Jesus, the Son of God, has no idea what my pain is, who has no idea what my difficulty, my struggle, my suffering, and my hardship and my temptation really are. Jesus can't possibly know that. Am I right? But though Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen because he is the son of God, he knows who he is. He knows why he came. He's been on that trajectory since chapter 9, going straight, setting his face like flint towards Jerusalem to die. He's already told them that many times in Mark, yet he says in verse 32 through 36, when they went to the place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here and pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but what you will. Friends, look deeply upon the anguish of Christ in these verses. Can you not feel his agony? Can you not feel and experience his suffering? Be sure he's the sovereign son of God who knows exactly what will happen, but that does not prevent the man from experiencing sheer torment and pleading with his heavenly father that it might be removed here is the pain of a man who knows that he's about not just to die but to die for sin 
to bear the full weight of the wrath of God upon himself for all of those whom God would restore to himself. Think about it. If everyone even in this room is a believer in Christ, the amount of sin and agony that Christ would face on your behalf alone, not to mention all believers through all time, throughout the world, throughout all centuries, He bore it all. You and I, we can't experience that level of agony. We can't. We can absolutely trust that Jesus knows our pain because he has faced so much more. I mean, look upon this man of sorrow. Look upon him. He takes his closest companions with him. His dearest friends, he asked them to watch and pray. He tells them intimately of the anguish of his soul, that he is greatly distressed and troubled, that he is sorrowful even to death. It was at this moment in Jesus' life that he began to fully feel the weight of what his submission to the Father would mean. Not because he feared suffering or because he feared death. Because we've seen it for five chapters, he's been heading straight for it. No, there's something more. And Jesus fell to the ground and he prayed, Son of God, falling on his knees. People should fall on their knees before him. And Luke tells us that he sweat drops of blood as he pleaded with God that if it were possible that the hour of his betrayal might pass from him. Jesus didn't pray because he questioned God's ability to remove the cup or that he feared suffering, but that he knew what comes with the cup. It's the cup of God's wrath. The full weight of his wrath. Complete alienation. Being forsaken. Being removed. Being separated from God. Jesus had never experienced that. And the overwhelming sensation in that moment as he bled from his pores in prayer to God, like it caused him to stagger. Jesus had to fight. He tasted the cup of wrath and the grief alone was almost killing him. And then you add insult to injury by the fact that three times Jesus came again to his closest friends and he, who he had openly experienced expressed his anguish too, they would have been able to see the drops of blood on his face and on his, on his hands. And, and he finds them sleeping. These guys that said, hey, I'm going to die for you, buddy. He finds them sleeping. This takes place between Jesus' prediction of their scattering and their actual abandonment so that we might know and understand that in this moment of Jesus' unbelievable, unimaginable agony that he was utterly alone. Completely alone. Now, I don't mean to minimize the pain that anyone has experienced here. Pain is painful. Right? I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm with you in your pain. But i got to tell you that none of us have experienced this kind of agony. No one take all of our pain combined and it's not even close to this. But here's the thing. Because Jesus willingly submitted 
to the Father facing this agony? We don't ever have to. Jesus willingly entrusted his life to his kind and loving Father so that his Father might be ours. That word Abba, it means Daddy. Now I understand, now that I'm a father, what that means. There's a difference between being a father and being a daddy. My boys call me dad, that's okay. But Claire, she calls me daddy. She calls me daddy because she loves me. She trusts me with her life. She calls me daddy. When she's afraid, when she's hurt, she comes to me for comfort, for strength. She calls me daddy when she hugs my neck and kisses me. She calls me daddy when I put her to bed and we pray together. This is the Abba Father that Jesus prays to. Do you understand that? God is not some distant, cold tyrant who simply uses Jesus as his whipping boy to commit divine child abuse. God loves his son. Because he loves his son, because his son loves him and entrusts his life to his good and gracious and loving father, you and I might have that father for ourselves. He said, yet not what I will, but you will. And he rose to meet his betrayer, to be delivered over into the hands of sinners, so that through faith in him, we might now call God Abba Father. Did you get that? Did you get the weight of that? Because Jesus was willing to face that agony and be separated from his loving father, you and I might be adopted as sons and daughters of God. You, If you've been united with Christ and you have received the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, God is now your Abba Father. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, if Jesus didn't willingly face the agony of the cross for sin, then you and I are not sons and daughters of God. We are still enemies of the God who created us, of the God who lovingly sustains our earthly lives, and the God who has given up, who struck down his dearly beloved son in order for us to be made away, to be freed from the wrath of God against our sin so that he might be our father. We can't treat that lightly.
We can't be flippant about that. We cannot be careless when it comes to that. Jesus was raised to new life so that we might have life in him, so that we might receive the spirit of adoption and be called sons and daughters of his Abba Father. He has been tempted in every way as we are, yet not without sin. In fact, he's been tempted more because he never gave into the sin. He experienced the full weight of it. Furthermore, he's made a way not only for us to be reconciled to God, but for us to actually live as Christ. This is truly possible because of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That call to holiness, that call to be like Christ, that call to walk as Christ walked, that's a real call. And it's, it's possible now because Christ is fully God and fully man and because he sacrificed himself for us. That is what the willing sacrifice of Christ attained for us, the hope of joy, the hope for change, the hope for reconciliation to God, and the hope for eternal life with God. What you and I could never do for ourselves, Christ did for us by enduring unimaginable suffering on our behalf. And praise Christ for his faithfulness. Amen? So there we see Jesus willingly faced agony. He endured such anguish, second, for the sake of the apathetic. Now I have often been perplexed by the devotion of Christ in this passage. Why did he suffer like this for them, for me? I mean, from here to the end of chapter 15, we see nothing but emotional and spiritual and physical suffering as Jesus lovingly and willingly embraces the will of his heavenly Father for a bunch of self-absorbed, arrogant idiots who foolishly and trust in their own abilities to prove themselves only to be utterly unable to do what they promise and obey as they are required. Are you not dumbfounded by the amazing love Christ has for his father and for his people that he would endure such agony for the sake of apathetic people like you and me? It is amazing. And what do we do as a response of praise and adoration for all of who Jesus is and all of what he has done on our behalf? We boast in the fact that we sacrifice for Jesus by showing up on Sunday rather than staying at home for the NFL game just so that we could get that little attendance tick on the church record. Look at me. Look what I've done. We sing songs that make much about what we are going to do for God. I mean, just just scratch out every first-person singular pronoun that you see in a song. It's garbage. It's not about what I do for him. It's about what he has done for us. We offer prayers of self-praise that we are, I'm not as sinful as that person or that person right over there. I'm not that bad. Look at what I have done. God, did you see all that I have done? Now remember this because you need to repay me. Things get hard, things get tough. When my air conditioner goes out in Texas, I want you to supply that freely for me. I do not want to pay $1,300. I am a servant of Christ. I repented of that this week. 
we have our mountaintop experiences that impact our lives just so much that we actually remember them the following day, but the day after or the week after or the month after, not so much. We judge ourselves righteous because of our good intentions rather than the true fruitfulness of our faith in Christ. It's amazing how much we sound like Peter and the other apostles right here in this passage. In verse 27, when Jesus said to them, listen, you're all going to fall away, right? It's been written. You're all going to fall away. You're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. They don't even pay attention to that fact. They're like, no, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fall away. I'm good. I'm great. Jesus turns around to Peter and says, listen, Peter, I appreciate you, bro, but you're going to deny me three times before this night's over. And Peter's like, no, no way. I'm going to die with you. Just watch. Watch. I'm going to die. And they're all like, yeah, me too, me too, me too. I'm going to die too. I mean, they're so sure that they're, and and honestly, I think their intentions were pure. I do. They're certain that it's not going to be me. And you think that Peter would have especially learned his lesson by now. I mean, the last time that Peter rebuked Jesus, Jesus turns around and calls him Satan, right? Jesus said, hey, not only am I going to die, but listen, if you're going to come after me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And now Peter, he thinks he's learned the lesson. He's like, okay, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go, Jesus. Look, I've learned my lesson, so I'm going to open my mouth again because I know what I'm talking about. But he doesn't. And so he gets it again. Hey, you're going to deny me three times. He might think that he's willing to give his life up for the sake of Christ, but he's not yet willing to totally live his life for the sake of Christ. The truth is, Jesus will be an offense to all of them, and they'll flee. Their certainty and their confidence and their devotion to Christ will mean very little when soldiers arrive with swords and clubs. And even when they fail, you see that Jesus is faithful. I'll see you again in Galilee. We need to keep going. Verse 32, when they actually get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus he, he tells the rest of them to remain there, sit and wait, and he takes his three closest companions. These guys have lived with Jesus for three years. They are his best friends. They've seen things that none of the other disciples have seen. They were there. They were the only three that were allowed to go into Jairus' house to see Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They got to go up on the mountain and see Jesus transfigured before their eyes. They quivered in fear and almost wet themselves before Christ as they saw a glimpse of His heavenly glory and He spoke to Moses and Elijah on the mountain and they were completely freaked out about it. Peter, he got to walk on water for like all of two seconds. I mean, that doesn't happen, right? I mean, nobody is closer. And here Jesus is saying, listen, come with me. Come with me. Come remain and watch. I've got to tell you. I'm going to bear my soul to you. I am ready to die. I'm in such agony. I am am woefully in anguish 
remain here and watch. And he's pulling that call that we saw back in chapter 13, verses 32 through 37, that they are to be on guard, that they are to stay awake, that they are to be ready, that they are to be prepared. And surely that they would be diligent to pray. I mean, no one is closer to Jesus. No one loved Jesus more. And no one thought that they were the greatest, that they deserved more. I think one of the reasons why Jesus took these three is because all of them thought that they deserved to be at his right and left. We saw that Mark chapter 10. And James and John said, hey, we want to be sitting at your right and left in your glory. And they thought that they could drink the cup of his suffering. They thought that they could be baptized with him in his death. Peter, we've just seen, is certain that he will not deny Jesus, that there is no way that this will happen, right? They are certain that they will not fall away. Even if they must die, they will not reject their Lord. And these guys are apostles, okay? Apostles. Peter would end up having the ability, well, God had the ability, but Peter's shadow would heal people. Apostles, guys. You and I, we're not them. If anybody's going to remain faithful to their commitment to Jesus, it's going to be them. And that's, but we know it's going to happen. We have the privilege of seeing the whole story and how it all plays out. And it amazes me that Jesus calls them to watch and pray. Jesus knows that he's about to betray, be betrayed. He knows that he is going to die and rise again and go to Galilee. He knows that his sheep will be scattered and that Peter will deny him three times, but he still calls his disciples to watch and pray. Guys, Christ's sovereignty and divine foreknowledge does not negate his call to obedience. And so what do these closest and well-intending disciples do? Well, Jesus had gone a little farther, which more than likely would have still been in their hearing. They could probably still hear Jesus praying because at that time people prayed out loud. And I doubt that Jesus was too quiet about it, right? As he's pleading his soul, remove this cup from me. Pick up in verse 37. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. Not that he was just repetitive, but like he was praying the same types of things. And, and again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. Instead of watching and praying that they would not fall into temptation, Jesus in his anguish returns three times to find his closest friends, his supposedly most committed disciples, asleep. They couldn't even watch for one hour. There's devotion for you. I'm not going to deny you. Even if I have to deny I, or die, I will not fall away. And while you're over there in agony, pleading your soul, sweating drops of blood as you cry out loudly to God, I, I'm just going to be over here taking a nap. If you wouldn't mind, could you keep it down just a little bit? I need my rest. 
friends, this is what happens when we stop only at good intentions. We, like Peter, James, and John, fall into temptation. Our spirit, meaning that our desire, our intention, our want, it may be willing, willing indeed, but our flesh is weak. Jesus stayed awake. He prepared his soul by praying to his heavenly Father. But the disciples, they thought that they were good, so they took a nap. You know, the reason why they fell into temptation is because they were focused on their immediate physical needs rather than their continual spiritual needs. They couldn't see what their true need really was, so they focused only on the immediate. How often do we neglect our soul's true need for the sake of our own flesh's desires? How often do we think that we're in a good and we neglect the weight of what is happening and so we fall into temptation? We go through life as those who are asleep rather than remaining watchful and meditating upon the agony and sacrifice of Christ. Now, I love you guys. I'm not mad at anybody, okay? But just take, for example our worship service. All right, just this right here. This is just representative, okay? This is not all there is. This is just representative. But how often can we go to a movie theater and stare for three hours without so much as blinking at the screen, but yet we come here on Sunday morning and we find it impossible to sit in our seats and keep our attention? How many times do we go to work, and we don't dare fall asleep there because my job is on the line if I'm caught sleeping at work. But, hey, man, sermon time seems like a great and convenient time for a nap. We sit in classrooms for an hour and a half without even so much as thinking to get up and go to the bathroom because we might get docked a point or two on our attendance rolls. But, hey, man, when the sermon's about ready to start, that's a great time to make a beeline for the blue room. Right? Or maybe, or maybe you're into sports and, and you'll go and you'll play basketball all day long and you'll sweat buckets and you won't even so much as take a sip of water. When you come to church on Sunday, that coffee over there, that water fountain just seems all too alluring. Now, sometimes you've got to take a drink, understand. Sometimes you just got to go, and that's okay. I would encourage you to go downstairs, please. Right? This, these are just representative of the fact that I think far too often, I, I fear that we, these things are simply an excuse to live out this passage. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The sad thing is we fail to see how our actions like this are representative of our apathy towards Christ. How flippant we are towards him. How ignorant and neglectful we are towards our Savior. That we fail to experience the weight of Christ's agony for us. How often do we go through life as those who are asleep? Friends, i got to say, do not let your eyes be heavy. Do not sit by stupid and speechless as Christ asks you, are you asleep? 
Could you not watch one hour? Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? So what do we do with this? How do we seek to apply that? I mean, we know full well that Jesus has done what we could not, and we need to praise him for that. But that doesn't mean that we should continue to just have good intentions and go through life just willy-nilly as those who are asleep. And so for just a few moments, I kind of want to get real practical with you because I think that Jesus does. And the first one is this. Man, this ought to humble us and lead us to repentance. We need to repent of our apathy towards Christ and his suffering on our behalf. And that ought to lead us into prayer. And I don't mean just an occasional popcorn prayers. I'm kind of going through my day and something crosses my mind and I pray like a two-second prayer saying, thank you, Jesus, and move on my way. I'm talking about diligent, persevering, intentional, labored, continual prayer. Jesus tells them to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He calls them to be watchful and alert at all times. Faithfulness to this call requires more than good intentions. It requires diligence. It requires intentionality. It requires purpose. It requires a plan. Most specifically, Jesus calls them to pray. And praying, we see in this, is a means of our staying awake. We see it here in this passage. Prayer overcomes fear. Had Peter and the disciples truly been watchful, they would not have scattered and deserted Jesus. We also see that prayer strengthens believers to persevere against the temptations of the flesh. It certainly had that effect on Jesus. He sweat drops of blood. In Christ, we see the example of faithfulness in prayer. Prayer does not result in the absence of emotions or distress. Did you get that? Right? Jesus was sweating drops of blood, folks. Okay? This is pretty intense. But it does result in trust even in the face of suffering and death. In prayer, we conform our wills to God's. We not only plead our desires to the Father, but we submit our wills to His good and wise and powerful and perfect plan. We say in prayer, Thy kingdom come and Thy will be done. Yet not as I will, but what you will. Prayer results in intimacy with God. As as Jesus drew near to God in prayer, He was reminded that God is His Abba Father. And through the sacrifice of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within all who believe in Christ, He is now our Father. And so why would we not run to Him? But another way, another application I would say is that we need to meditate and marvel on the person and work of Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see that perfect harmony of Jesus' full deity and his complete humanity. We stand in awe of how willing he was to suffer such agony for those like us who could care less. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, since we have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us 
also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood he's not just talking about persecution he's talking about jesus drops of blood poured out as he resisted the temptation to disobey his father and what we do when we come together in the name of christ is not a temporary earthly gathering do you guys know this? Do you remember Caleb's sermon from a few weeks ago where he's preaching from Ephesians 3? What happens here is cosmic and spiritual in nature. When we come together, we are waging war for our souls. I'm not just waging war for my soul, but I'm waging war for your soul, Abel. I'm waging war for your soul, Yabin. I'm doing all of that. I am. We labor together for one another's souls as we come here. This is wartime mentality. There is something going on that is bigger than what is seen, that is more than simply a worship gathering. True spiritual cosmic significance is at place here. And what would happen if we treated it that way? If we recognized that we were fighting against the powers of flesh and the world and the demonic? What would happen if we prayed in full assurance of faith, in trusting completely in our Abba Father and fighting for one another? Perhaps maybe then both our spirit and our flesh would be willing. And Jesus would find us watching rather than asleep. Praise God that Jesus was willing to face agony for the sake of the apathetic. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are humbled, and I pray that we all stand in awe of the sheer agony and anguish that Christ was willing to endure for those who were ungodly and those who hated you and those who lived as your enemy who were dead in their sin. God, I, I pray that we would not live as those who are asleep. That we would not be faithless. That we would not just judge ourselves based upon our good intentions, but that we would Fight the fight of faith with perseverant prayer and unrelenting praise. God, we thank you that Jesus endured such suffering so that we may not have to grow weary or faint-hearted. And I pray for the souls of each person here today that may we trust completely in the sufficient and powerful and perfect sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And may we not respond in duty, but in delight that, that you love us, that you are our Father. Christ died for us. 
that we would respond in wanting to pray, to live, to love for him. It's in his name we pray.